This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, including sexual abuse of a child, suicide, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was 1994. 25-year-old Treva Thornberry clutched her few belongings close as she exited the train and scanned the new town's landscape. She spotted a church just ahead. She could try there first. She tightened her dirty brown pigtails, opened her bag, and shoved her teddy bear and her Bible into the nook of one arm. She was trying to look as young and as vulnerable as she felt. After hours on the train, it felt good to walk. She just hoped that Plano, Texas, about 150 miles away from where she grew up, was far enough away. The oversized church doors creaked in mild protest as she opened them and walked inside. People were mingling before the morning service. Almost instantly, she caught the worried eyes of several parishioners. They approached, gently asking who she was, if she was all right. Treva said, My name is Kara Williams. I'm 16. My father is a satanic cult leader, and he murdered my mother. I had to get away. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week in a special one-part episode, we'll cover the story of Treva Throneberry, a woman who ran away from home. She manipulated countless peers, social workers, and even police officers to secure a roof over her head and to prolong her childhood. To those that knew her, Treva seemed like an ordinary, happy child, just a little quiet. But that disarming exterior hid a complicated, troubled woman. Treva Throneberry was born on May 18, 1969. She was raised in Electra, a small oil town in northern Texas. It was a friendly place where everyone knew each other, and Treva's parents, Carl and Patsy, were well-respected. Treva was the youngest of five children. Though their small house was plenty crowded already, Treva's uncle, Billy Ray, would regularly drop in and stay with the family for weeks at a time. Billy Ray doted on all of the children, but he took a special interest in Treva. He'd bring her presents and take her for rides in his car. She was the youngest after all, and when her older sisters all got married in their teens and moved out, Treva was the only kid left at Carl and Patsy's home. But there was a reason her sisters married off so young. They were looking for an escape. Many years later, Treva's sisters said that they lived in constant fear of their uncle. At night, he would wander into their rooms, reeking of alcohol, and molest them. He warned that if they told anyone, he'd have their parents killed, leaving him in charge of the girls. So they kept their mouths shut and got out as soon as they could. But Treva, too young to leave home, endured his full attention. Before we continue with Treva's psychology, please note I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Counseling Association, childhood sexual abuse has been correlated with higher levels of depression, guilt, shame, self-blame, eating disorders, somatic concerns, anxiety, dissociative patterns, repression, denial, sexual problems, and relationship problems. The ongoing violations sent Treva spiraling, but she kept her suffering to herself. She was shy, usually content to sit quietly and read from the Bible. As a teen, she carried a copy with her to school and to her job at the local drive-in restaurant. When she wasn't waitressing, she was honing her tennis skills at the old court behind the school. But there were signs of trouble. One night, while her young niece was sleeping over, teenage Treva told the child that an armed man was in their house. The adults were woken up to search the house, but there was no intruder. It's possible Treva had heard a noise outside the door 
and it triggered her fears of Uncle Billy Ray. In psychological terms, a trigger is any kind of stimulus that can bring about a memory or flashback of a traumatic event. These episodes can feel incredibly real to the person experiencing them. In Treva's case, she must have genuinely believed Billy Ray was back to hurt her again. She couldn't talk to anyone about her awful experiences, but she sought private outlets to express her pain. She had ratty notebooks filled with sorrowful teenage poetry, but her anguish emerged in other ways, too. Texas Monthly reporter Skip Hollinsworth said, One Sunday at the Pentecostal church, she stumbled to the front altar, fell to her knees, and began telling Jesus that she didn't deserve to live. Her outburst could have stemmed from shame related to the sexual abuse. According to a study by Candace Firing and Lynn S. Tosca for the College of New Jersey, the secretive context in which sexual abuse takes place, condemnation of the victim by the perpetrator, and explicit threats to keep silent promote feelings of shame. Treva was too afraid to tell anyone what was going on, and the negative feelings were building in the devout teen. One afternoon in 1985, when Treva was 15 years old, she walked into the police station and said she'd been raped by her father, Carl, at gunpoint. She claimed that her mother did nothing but laugh when she found out. Child services immediately removed Treva from her home, and an emergency protection order prevented her parents from even knowing her location. Word spread across the small town, but no one in the family believed Treva. Her sisters stood by their father. Carl and Patsy said Treva made the story up and even suggested she take a lie detector test. But members of Electra's Pentecostal church, where Treva was very active, said Treva was scared to be at home in the weeks before she accused her father. If Carl didn't rape Treva, it's possible she saw falsely accusing him as a way to get away from her uncle. Billy Ray had threatened to murder their parents if the girls spoke out. Treva might have reasoned that accusing her father would remove her from the situation without jeopardizing any lives. And even though the charges against Carl were dismissed due to lack of evidence, she never had to go back to that house again. Instead, 15-year-old Treva was taken directly into foster care and was placed with Sharon Gentry, a middle school science teacher in Wichita Falls. Gentry tried to connect with Treva, but she couldn't help but notice the signs of her troubled past. She'd find Treva sleeping in the fetal position in the corner of her bedroom, completely enveloped by sheets and covers likely a habit she formed after sleeping in a home with an abuser. Reporter Skip Hollinsworth wrote, On other nights, Gentry would find her banging her head against the wall, murmuring in her sleep, Please don't hurt me. I'll be a good girl. Gentry's heart broke for Treva. It was clear that the teen was grappling with dark fears and impulses. Suicidal thoughts plagued her mind. 
According to a Canadian Institutes of Health research study, child sex abuse victims are much more likely than those in the general population to experience depressive symptoms, PTSD, and self-harming behaviors. And Triva had no tools at her disposal to process her trauma. She and her sisters didn't even talk among themselves about what Billy Ray had done to them. So she channeled her trauma in unhealthy ways. Triva told Gentry wild stories of being forced into satanic cult rituals. She left notes that said things like, sometimes I wish I were dead. Gentry was at a loss for how to respond to these stories, and she wasn't the only one. Triva wasn't only lying to Gentry, she was lying to herself and may have believed her own stories. She was on a slippery slope, and it was only a matter of time before Triva completely disappeared into her own fantasy world, possibly for good. Coming up, Triva vanishes and then turns up in towns across the country, each time with a different name and a new harrowing backstory. It was all to serve one agenda, postponing adulthood. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After a childhood of sexual abuse at the hands of her uncle, in 1986, 17-year-old Treva Throneberry was living with her foster mother, Sharon Gentry. And Gentry was disturbed by the wild stories Treva spun about surviving satanic cults and ritual sexual abuse. In May, Treva told her school counselor she wanted to jump off of the school's roof and kill herself. The police immediately intervened. Treva was committed to the Wichita Falls State Hospital. The hospital staff reported that she experienced more suicidal thoughts, cried often, rarely ate, and spent most of her time alone. Her doctors and therapists weren't confident in a specific diagnosis, but they thought Treva might have a personality disorder, like borderline or dissociative identity disorder. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, people with borderline identity disorder have trouble regulating their emotions and are prone to impulsivity and low self-esteem. Those with dissociative identity disorder can alternate between several distinct personas as a coping mechanism. While her counselors continued to work out a diagnosis, Treva participated in group therapy with other adolescents. She was prescribed benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, and antidepressants. Her parents came to the hospital wanting to speak to her. She agreed to a supervised visit. But Carl and Patsy provided no comfort. Instead, they repeatedly urged her to confess to lying about the sexual assault. Treva refused. 
she said they were the liars and returned to her room. They didn't visit Treva again during her five-month stint at the hospital. In October of 1986, 17-year-old Treva was deemed healthy enough for release. She didn't want to be placed back with her parents, but that wasn't a problem. They didn't want her back, not unless she recanted her accusations. Instead, she was sent to live at Lena Pope Home, a nonprofit treatment center for troubled adolescents in Fort Worth. She still needed to finish her senior year of high school, so she enrolled at Arlington Heights High. On May 18, 1987, she turned 18. And in June, she graduated. While commencement is a noteworthy occasion for most teens, for a foster child turning 18, it's even more significant. Suddenly, they're responsible for their own education, employment, housing, healthcare, and emotional well-being, often without the guidance of their former foster parent or parents. For Treva, it meant she was truly on her own. She could no longer live under state juvenile supervision, and she had nowhere to go. Her former foster mother, Sharon Gentry, said that Treva couldn't envision adult life. In a New York Times article, journalist Emily White wrote, Throneberry was fixated on 18 as some kind of Rubicon she could not cross. She didn't believe in her own existence after that threshold. The Autonomous University of Nuevo León conducted a case study on a 14-year-old boy who suffered from excessive fear of aging. He, too, had a history of regular sexual abuse. According to the study, it is known that when a traumatic event occurs, distrust in the skills to face the future is generated. The trauma of Treva's abuse challenged her self-confidence to her core. She wasn't confident in her ability to handle the pressures and responsibility that adulthood brings. It was a terrifying unknown. She didn't even know how to begin to face the challenge. She returned to Electra for a couple of days, but steered clear of her parents' home. She met with her sisters and told them wild stories of satanic cults. She wouldn't meet their eyes when they urged her to apologize to their father. Treva then made her way back to Fort Worth for a short while before getting a job as a maid at a rundown motel in Arlington. But she soon lost her apartment and found herself homeless. According to the National Foster Youth Institute, 20% of children in foster care become itinerant as soon as they turn 18. She called her former foster parent, Sharon Gentry, only once while living on the streets. And that was the last anyone heard from Treva before she disappeared without a trace. As time passed, rumors circulated that Treva was dead, and her family had no reason to doubt them. No one had seen or heard from her in years. But in 1991, when Treva was 22, she resurfaced. She was living in the town of Corvallis, Oregon, where she worked at a McDonald's and stayed with a family she'd met in church. 
Treva Keeley Throneberry Smith and used her real social security number. But otherwise, she'd left her old life behind. She told people she preferred to be called Keeley Smith and in an effort to get her name officially changed, told Corvallis police that she was hiding from her sexually abusive father in Dallas. Police began the search for him, but she skipped town. A year later, she showed up in Portland, Oregon with a similar story, but this time her father was a local cop. Another investigation was launched, but again, Treva disappeared before the matter was resolved. Each time she ventured to a new place, she presented herself as a troubled teenager at a local church, knowing some kind parishioner would open their home to her. And when authorities or social workers launched deeper investigations into the tragic stories she told, she'd board the next train out of town. She'd start over with a new alias and return to an age between 14 and 17, making sure to never reach adulthood. With each move came a new high school, a seemingly endless string of first days, and each new identity's origin story got further and further from the truth. In 1994, when she was 25, she went by Kara Leanna Davis while living in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. This time, she claimed her mother had been murdered and her father was a rapist and cultist. A few months later, she arrived in Plano, Texas as Kara Williams. She told authorities she was 16 years old, born and raised in a violent, abusive, satanic cult. She said her father was a police officer in a different suburb of Dallas and had murdered her mother. She was playing into the satanic panic narrative that was widespread in the 1980s and early 90s. Many people feared underground cults were committing ritual, child, and animal abuse in the name of the devil. Christian fundamentalism and the media had already stoked fear of the occult, but the idea of satanic ritual abuse really took hold when a phony psychiatric study on the subject, a book called Michelle Remembers, became a national bestseller in 1980. Though the events in the book were quickly debunked, more people were coming forward with similar stories. According to Asia Romano with Vox, the investigation into these labyrinthine claims of satanic ritual abuse would send at least 26 people to jail despite a complete lack of corroborative physical evidence for any of the claims. Treva's various backstories could have been an attention-seeking behavior playing into the widespread fears of the time. And when she told her mind-boggling tales, authorities listened closely took notes, and made promises to care for the lonely, lost girl. This attention was her only outlet to meet her emotional needs. After Treva described the horrors she endured in the satanic cult, people she didn't even know went out of their way to make her feel special and loved. A volunteer for the social work agency even took her to Six Flags and on trips to the mall 
the lies she told about her age were also significant. Presenting as a minor meant that Treva could stay in the only familiar world that made sense to her. She could live in the structured protection of high school with a guardian providing for her basic needs at home. The pressures and independence of adulthood were put on hold. This may have been especially attractive to someone who was coping with childhood sexual abuse and who was then left to figure out her own way in the world after her 18th birthday. Instead of facing the future, she remained a teenager, hopping from town to town. In 1995, Suzanne Arnold, the Plano Child Protective Services worker supervising Treva's case, got a call from someone working at a treatment center. The caller had grown up in Electra and told Suzanne she thought she recognized 26-year-old Treva, but by a different name. After this report, Suzanne dug deeper and compiled evidence, including records, photos, and handwriting samples. She showed these to Treva and demanded an explanation, but Treva still swore she was 16-year-old Kara Williams. Suzanne didn't believe her. Treva was discharged from government supervision and found herself looking for a new city again. She arrived in Asheville, North Carolina in June of 1996 as Emily Cara Williams. By August, she had moved on to Altoona, Pennsylvania. There, someone spotted the name Suzanne Arnold written in her notebook and made a call to the Plano social worker. Treva was tracked down and sent to jail for nine days for issuing a false police report against her fictional Tennessee father, who she claimed ran a child pornography ring. But she was back at it as soon as she was free. Her unique journey back in time took her to Louisiana, New Jersey, and Ohio. In 1997, 28-year-old Treva arrived in Vancouver, Washington, posing as 16-year-old Brianna Stewart. She made her way to the Glad Tidings megachurch, where she sought refuge as a runaway. A church secretary took her in and then drove her to Evergreen High School to enroll her as soon as possible. Treva told the school counselor that she was a runaway from Mobile, Alabama, looking for her birth father after her mother's murder. She said she'd been homeschooled and therefore couldn't provide any proof of previous education. No one questioned her age. If she looked too old, that could be attributed to what had clearly been a very hard life. Mental health professionals in Vancouver didn't know the truth of what Treva had endured, but they thought she might have amnesia or some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder because she seemed hazy about the details from her past. PTSD can manifest in a wide array of symptoms, including fear, anxiety, avoidance, withdrawing from others, depression, suicidal thoughts, and amnesia. Instead of poking holes in Treva's stories, the mental health workers reasoned she may have been repressing traumatic memories. Her inability to persuasively describe her past actually helped her cover story. 
Triva was quickly enrolled as a sophomore in the fall of 1997. As usual, she stayed with families from the church in town. At school, she joined the tennis team, something that most of her previous aliases had done, and sang in the chorus for the school's performance of Man of La Mancha. Most of the 1900 students at the school heard about Triva's life at one point or another, so they forgave her awkwardness and the fact that she donned the same outfit almost every day, baggy bib overalls and pigtails. Still, she caught the eye of 15-year-old Ken Dunn. He first spotted her in the sports medicine office after they both experienced minor injuries in their tennis and football practices. They hit it off, passing notes to one another until eventually Triva invited Ken to attend church with her at Glad Tidings. From that point on, church on Sunday was a standing date. When he got his license, Ken took her around on errands and to the mall in his 1978 Brown El Camino. In coffee shops and mall food courts, Triva told Ken horrific tales about her past. She claimed she'd witnessed her stepfather murder her mother, was raped by the stepfather and his friends, got pregnant at 12, and was forced to miscarry. Despite the traumatic backstory, Ken wasn't scared away by Triva. She was a beautiful person who could recite scripture and Macbeth, and she'd endured so much. In his eyes, she was perfect. When Evergreen High's Sadie Hawkins dance came around, Ken was delighted that Triva asked him to be her date. They both donned overalls and red shirts. A perfect match. On the dance floor, Ken held Triva in his arms, worked up his courage, and confessed his love for her. She said she loved him too. They shared their first kiss and danced the night away. Ken had fallen in love with 16-year-old Brianna, a girl who didn't exist, and 28-year-old Triva was all too willing to play the part. In fact, she'd fallen so deeply into character, she no longer realized she was lying. But her tangled stories were about to trap her. Coming up, Triva settles further into her identity as Brianna, but before long, her turbulent past catches up to her. Now back to the story. Triva Throneberry, now 29, spent years pretending to be a teenage runaway. By 1997, she'd allowed herself to become comfortable in her persona as 16-year-old Brianna Stewart. Months passed, then a year, and she didn't bolt. This was the longest she'd remained under one alias. She had a nice boyfriend who helped ground her younger identity. The other kids were friendly. No one was looking into her past. Triva and Ken's relationship carried over to the 11th grade. They held hands in the halls, went to movies, and walked the mall together. But she was approaching 18 again, 
and she had to take care of some things. First on the docket was obtaining a new social security number. She couldn't get a driver's license, apply for a job, rent an apartment, or attend college without one. She also couldn't produce a birth certificate or a birth parent, so a few people stepped in to help her. Treva said her stepfather had been Navajo, and she offered a theory that she may have been kidnapped at a young age. So a staffer from Indian Health Services scoured missing child databases for answers. A social worker searched government directories, but came up empty. Treva even traveled by train to Daphne, Alabama, where she claimed she was raised. There, she allowed a police officer to drive her around to see if anything looked familiar that would help the search for evidence. But not everyone was so quick to believe Treva's stories. When she visited a dentist in Portland, he saw that her wisdom teeth had been extracted long enough ago for the scars to have healed, unusual for a girl of 16. When her social worker and her boyfriend questioned this, Treva got very defensive, angry they'd question her age. In 1999, during her junior year, Treva moved in with a local family, the Gambettas. She had her own room and went to school with one of the kids. One day she called the police and said that the boy's father, David Gambetta, had cameras in the light fixtures in her room. The police investigated, but didn't find any evidence of this. Now the Gambettas wanted Treva out of the house. She found a new place to stay, but she stood by her allegations. However, her boyfriend Ken knew the family well and began to doubt Treva for the first time after over a year of dating. Their relationship began to fizzle out. But Treva was comfortable in her life in Vancouver. The breakup with Ken wasn't enough to make her want to run away and start over again. This meant that she was finally willing to cross that line into adulthood, as Brianna. She even had her heart set on community college. In June of 2000, Treva walked across the stage and accepted her diploma, graduating high school for a second time. She met with the vice president of Clark College, Blaine Nissen, and explained her tragic story and her lack of personal records. Nissen was stricken by her situation and found a way to grant her a tuition waiver of $1,575 for the upcoming academic year. But this was only a temporary fix. Treva still needed to come up with a social security number. Until she had that, Brianna couldn't truly exist as an adult. She wrote to the governor of Washington and enlisted two lawyers from different cities to help her cause, all independent of one another. One lawyer focused on the vital records office for a birth certificate, and the other petitioned the government for a social security number. For this application though, Treva had to undergo a fingerprint test. She completed the requirements and waited. 
she apparently didn't realize that her fingerprints would match the records from when she was arrested in Altoona, Pennsylvania, five years prior. When the results came back in March 2001, 31-year-old Treva Throneberry was arrested. Treva was charged by the state of Washington with two counts of first-degree theft, one count of second-degree theft, three counts of first-degree perjury, and one count of second-degree perjury. It wasn't long before everyone in town heard the gossip. Ken was working down in Disney World when his mother frantically called him with the news. He was astonished. But the story was too scandalous to stay within Treva's orbit in Vancouver. Soon, the strange tale of the eternal teenager captivated people all over the country. Only after Treva's arrest did her sisters publicly discuss the sexual abuse they'd all faced as children at the hands of Uncle Billy Ray. He'd passed away by then, and they finally felt safe enough to talk about it. For the first time, the world learned about Treva's trauma, and it colored the public response to her story. Some wanted her to simply get the help she needed, especially after hearing what she'd been through. Others, like the Clark County Senior Deputy Prosecutor, Michael Kinney, classified Treva as a manipulative criminal who'd gamed the system. During her time as Brianna, Treva had received funds in the form of children's health services, foster care, and public schooling. But still, she maintained that she didn't know anything about her old life, her parents, or Treva Throneberry. When she found out her lawyers were going to testify to her real identity in court, she fired them. Instead, she opted to represent herself during the five-day trial. And she did, with a stack of law books at her side and her hair in her signature pigtails. After all, they'd worked to make her seem younger before. But Sharon Gentry, Treva's former foster mother, was flown in to testify about her adolescent years. She identified Brianna as Treva. She brought photos. She grew emotional as she described Treva as a hardworking student and a good kid. Even after the emotional and persuasive testimony, Treva continued to insist that she was Brianna and had never met Gentry before. Her standby counsel, Jerry Ware, said, there's no question in my mind, having spent as much time with her as I have, that she is of the opinion that she is Brianna Stewart. From a psychological standpoint, Treva's behavior was hard to explain. Her symptoms were comparable to those of dissociative amnesia or dissociative identity disorder. People who suffer from these conditions often feel a disconnect from their true selves as if they are outside observers of their own lives. These disorders are often paired with a loss of personal memories. When these disruptions occur, alternate personalities can emerge. Whether these new individuals are aware of the original person differs case by case. The National Alliance on Mental Illness said, 
Often these identities may have unique names, characteristics, mannerisms, and voices. According to the Mayo Clinic, dissociative disorders usually develop as a reaction to trauma and help keep difficult memories at bay. Treva had seemingly separated herself from the real abuse that she'd endured by becoming someone else. Maybe this meant she'd really believed her fingerprints were those of Brianna when she submitted them for a social security card, or possibly it simply slipped her mind that her prints were in the system from her arrest in Altoona. But now, the evidence seemed to prove that she was Treva Throneberry, no matter how much she protested. And inconsistencies in her own records as Brianna weakened her position even further. For example, she told authorities her birth year was 1981, but her enrollment paperwork for Evergreen High said 1980. Given Gentry's testimony, the photos, and the fingerprint evidence, the jury didn't take long to find Treva guilty. She was offered a deal of only four months in jail if she admitted to the lies, but she refused it. So in November 2001, Treva Throneberry received a three-year sentence. Reporter Skip Hollinsworth wrote, Judge Harris said he wished he could send her to a state hospital for treatment, but his only legal option was prison. From the Washington Correction Center for Women in Gig Harbor, Treva tried to appeal her conviction, arguing that evidence had been mishandled, contesting the credentials of the fingerprint expert, and challenging Gentry's expertise in identifying her former foster child. None of these claims overturned her conviction. Treva was released from prison early, in June of 2003, when she was 34 years old. She moved to Seattle and lived at a women's shelter called Knoll House for a few months. She has since fallen out of the public eye. But she resurfaced briefly in June of 2016, when she accused a man of trying to sexually assault her while she was working at a hotel in Washington. At that time, she went by the name Brianna Kenzie. It's clear she left Treva behind in Electra all those years ago, and seemingly has no intention of returning to that name or that identity ever again. Whether she was playing a long con to stay off of the streets or battling with mental illness, she did what it took to survive as Brianna. For more information on Treva Throneberry, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Day Treva Throneberry Disappeared by Skip Hollinsworth to be extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
But now, Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Molly Foreman, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.